This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A huge story involving the oil and gas industry is unfolding with that deadly house explosion in Weld County last month. Investigators say methane leaked from a pipeline into the home and it ignited, killing two men. Joining us now is Joshua Zaphos, correspondent for High Country News. He has covered energy and environmental issues from his home base in Fort Collins for more than a decade. And Joshua, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What's fascinating about this story, I think, is that it raises the question of not how close oil and gas operations can move in near homes, but how close homes can move in near existing oil and gas operations. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But uh, first, is it possible that an explosion like this could happen again, given the 50,000 oil and gas wells in Colorado these days? Well, in the aftermath of this uh, explosion, oil and gas, the industry has basically said, well, this is a very unusual situation. We had you know, a, 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 what is called a flow line that leads away from the well pad that was accidentally cut. Uh, we're not really even sure yet who cut that, right. uh, but we know it was happening while they were doing some building. So uh, certainly... Uh, from the industry perspective, this was, you know, being treated as an extremely rare case. But because we do have construction and new homes being built uh, all up and down the front range, and uh, at times we're letting that happen within a few hundred feet of uh, existing oil and gas infrastructure, uh, certainly we're hearing from activists that, yeah, they're really concerned that we could have another accident like this at some point. Right. And much more will be revealed when we learn exactly how this line was cut. So investigators say that even though the house was less than 200 feet from the well, that's not the issue in Firestone, that it was indeed this buildup of methane from this abandoned pipeline that was coming from the well. I want to say that the well is quite old and had been inert for a time and begun operating again. This was not a fracked well. So this incident is not about fracking. Uh, And again, the well had been there for some time and the home moves in. It was built about a year and a half ago. So it sounds like the pipeline was accidentally cut. Uh, Again, this is called a flow line. And and say more about what a flow line is. So flow lines basically uh, lead away from well pads and they oftentimes are carrying uh, product or, or carrying, I'm sorry, gas or oil to basically what will be production facilities. So uh, this is basically lines that take it away from the well to another place. And uh, basically, we have these running all over under the ground. Uh, I think I saw one estimate that says we have 600,000 miles of flow lines uh, that, you know, basically crisscross uh, leading from wells to other kind of oil and gas infrastructure. As we said, two men died in the home and a third person is severely injured. Governor Hickenlooper has ordered a review of oil and gas pipelines, including flow lines in Colorado, as a result of this. Are are they not normally inspected? There are rules, certainly for inspections and monitoring uh, in a lot of cases. And basically what we're seeing here uh, from this particular incident is that we're finding out uh, well, you know, those that, that level of monitoring inspections may not be occurring quite as often as uh, is required in the rules. Um, in cases, as you mentioned, this was an older well. So older wells that are turned off for two years and then turned back on yeah. at any point are supposed to go through a certain uh, amount of testing. And right now it's really just not clear if this well went through that when it was turned back on. 
Uh, part of that is also, again, this is uh, some of these responsibilities are split between uh, the regulatory uh, organization, which is the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission, uh, and then also with industry, which has some responsibility of its own as well. So there is some self-policing going on, self-inspection, if you will, that the industry checks out its own wells and lines. Is that right? Yeah, I believe on certain levels here when we're talking about different uh, elements of oil and gas infrastructure, it's just from a you know financial and logistical point of view, just not uh, realistic that we're going to get. I think we have uh, something around 20 field inspectors uh, that go and look at oil and gas wells. So it's a pretty quick uh, or it's a pretty massive job for that for that uh, entity to take care of. And as a result, there are certain things that it's up to industry to kind of keep an eye on. And yeah, as you said, self-report. 20 or so, that is, that work for the state of Colorado. And then you've got industry looking at some of its own equipment. Um, so the governor is indeed relying on companies to conduct these inspections on some occasions. And there is uh, some folks upset about that idea. Um, I want to play this from the governor who hopes for a new round of inspections that will take away some fear that people have right now. Long term, in terms of how do we map these, do we, how do we, where is that information kept in, in, where the public can get at it? I think that's just a, a matter of a longer-term project that will take probably a, you know, a couple of years to get done just because I mean, I some of these old wells that have been abandoned, I'm not sure if people even know where the flow lines are, right? So he's saying that the state may eventually want to map where all of the pipeline and flow lines are. And I'll say that in the final days of the legislative session, lawmakers are taking up a bill to do what the governor's talking about there, give the public access to gas pipeline maps. Um I wonder, is there any way a homeowner could know now if there's a pipeline nearby? From what I'm seeing, it's really very difficult. Uh, as the governor's comment was speaking to making data related to oil and gas lines more accessible, uh, right now the Oil and Gas Commission does have a database online, but it's, it is very tricky to navigate, and it's not like you can just pump in your, uh, uh, enter your address and find out what kind of uh, infrastructure is around you. So uh, right now, that's a pretty tricky uh, predicament for, you know, folks who are worried about that. Okay. Well, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association says it supports inspections like these, is committed to safety, quoting, in the weeks and months that follow, we will endeavor to enhance flow line and pipeline procedures and remain committed to improving Colorado oil and gas production. So over the years, most of the concern and debate about oil and gas activity has focused on the industry, and activists have tried to limit how close oil and gas companies can put wells to homes and schools, other buildings. But what about the other way around? I mean, what's preventing a home developer from building a house right next to an old well or pipeline, assuming they even know they are? Yeah, I mean, that's been obviously a a bit of an issue, and I think of course, this explosion and these fatalities are bringing that to the forefront. Uh, as you mentioned, we've focused a lot on what happens when we're putting in new wells and a lot of attention is out on those fracked wells uh, that, that the oil and gas infrastructure is new. And we have rules there where we say those can't be within three, uh, I'm sorry, 500 feet of a house or a thousand feet of a school or a hospital. Right. But on the, when we flip that around, it's basically considered a county or local government land use issue. And uh, in Firestone and surrounding Weld County, that's basically says 
a new house can be only a hundred be built only 150 feet from oil and gas infrastructure that you know as you said we might not even know is there yeah i mean it reminds me a bit of like the no before you dig thing with natural gas um not hitting utility pipelines you'd want builders presumably to be empowered as well in that regard and i'll say that there are no statewide rules right about uh, what distances these can be from existing infrastructure that's that's in part why firestone's rule applied in firestone right and again it's uh you know it's just those cases have been treated as local land use issues the same way we would if we were you know building a school next to a factory or something so uh because you know, here's a case where, okay, the well was 200 feet away. As you mentioned, you know, they're not directly blaming the well, but these flow lines that, you know, uh, stretch miles away from wells, uh, you know, it's starting to kind of bring to attention, hey, if something goes wrong here, it can affect something that's hundreds and, you know, feet away from an actual well. Now, speaking of wells, are old or inactive wells, um, do they pose any kind of inherent danger in and of themselves? Well, there is concern because when you uh, make a well inactive, there is a chance that the pressure from the oil and gas that, you know, the well was at one time pumping may build up over time. And that could potentially lead to, you know, failures, whether again, that's, um, you know, might be a flow line, but I think more, more specifically related to the well itself and the casing that, you know, keeps... Uh, that, that basically serves as a concrete sleeve for that well. So there is concern, and that's one of the reasons we have rules in the books that say if a well is turned off for a few years and you want to turn it back on, it should be monitored um, or it should be kind of cleared before we decide that to make sure it's still holding its integrity. The operator of this well and pipeline is Anadarko. The company decided to temporarily shut down 3,000 older wells in Colorado right after the fire. Uh, what more do activists and environmentalists want to see happen here? I mean, I imagine that they feel emboldened right now. Yeah, I think that part's really interesting. Uh, you know, I don't want to too directly compare Anadarko with, let's say, BP, but typically when we see these really kind of national level uh, oil spills, we see companies acting a lot more defensive. And in this case, we've seen Anadarko and industry at large in Colorado, I think, be pretty accommodating. They preemptively turned off their wells and have been, as you read earlier, very supportive of, you know, kind of these inspections going forward. But this has been a, a long simmering issue uh, with activists and, uh, you know, they're not really placated by at least these initial moves by either the state government or by industry. And uh, so far we've heard uh, calls from the Sierra Club saying we want a halt to any new drilling. And we've seen activists say uh, we want a halt to any current drilling around cities until we get better flow line maps or we get better disclosure and improved monitoring. Mm. Have you um, heard? And, and as well, I'll add that there's also a call out for maybe a statewide, what they call a reverse setback, a setback for these new homes that are going in around oil and gas and to make that more of a state level issue. Got it. That was my next question is whether there might be a statewide approach to this. So you're hearing some rumblings of that. What are the biggest questions you have at this point about the, about the incident or what comes next? Well, again, I, I think there's it could be a little bit of a day of reckoning for industry and particularly the regulators because we do have rules out there. Um, activists feel like, hey, those could be stronger, but even the ones we have right now, I don't think are necessarily. We're, you know, the state is has a great track record of saying, hey, we're getting out there um, within two years to do, you know, inspections of these uh, capped in wells. Let's say, or I'm sorry, turned in wells. So. 
Uh, there may be some more pressure to either, you know, better fund oil and gas. But again, because there's been a bit of an antagonist, antagonistic relationship between environmentalists and community activists and the industry, uh, we're also hearing activists say, hey, we need this to be handled independently and to get an outside look of the state government to say, here's what's working, here's what's not, and here's what maybe we need to change. Well, thank you for being with us. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ryan. Joshua Zaphos writes about energy and the environment for High Country News and other publications. He also teaches natural resources communications at Colorado State University. We talked about that deadly explosion of a home in northwest Colorado caused by leaked gas from a nearby flow line. When we come back, how a skyscraper could become a power plant. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If windows can become solar panels, then giant glass office towers can become power plants. That's huge because commercial buildings use more than a third of the nation's electricity. Well, solar windows are driving a partnership between a Maryland-based company and the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden. It's the subject of beta test today, our coverage of the cutting edge. John Conklin joins me. He's CEO of Solar Windows. John, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate this opportunity. So is the window itself the solar panel or is it some sort of covering of a window? Well, it's actually both. Uh, What we're doing, Ryan, is we're taking ordinary window glass and we're covering it with a transparent electricity generating coating. And when that window is connected to the same frame that you would see in any ordinary window and connected to the wires in the building, that window would generate electricity. Interesting. Okay, so is this something you would retrofit old buildings with or just make sure are in new buildings? Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan. And and actually, it's for both. We have products under development for uh, replacement windows and new construction, but there is a substantial market for retrofit. Uh, And the information that we have is nine out of 10 buildings will need to be retrofitted with windows. And the retrofit market is, is one of our key market entries. So how much power could this generate? Well, what we'd like to do is compare it to um, conventional PV rooftop panels, Ryan. And when we look at a, a skyscraper, uh, the, the skyscrapers going up in Denver are, are cases in point. Uh, you look at the top of that skyscraper, they're very small rooftop space. And when you look at the size of the glass that cover all four sides of that building – you're looking at the potential for acres of glass. Mm-hmm. And and what we do is because of the transparency and the power that's generating, um, we're looking at, at at offsetting 30 to 50% of the electricity demand for that building uh, and the 15 times the environmental benefits as compared to that rooftop solar. Uh, so it's a tremendous opportunity to utilize all that vertical real estate uh, and maintain the purpose and beauty of window glass. Right. You could still see through these windows pretty clearly. Yes, that's correct. And uh, and our scientist, Dr. Scott Hammond, working with our scientists at NREL, is developing the coating to be in an array of colors that are consistent with what we see for architectural trends in building glass. Hmm. Uh, earlier, you mentioned PV photovoltaics. So the point is that this 
vastly expands the surface area that can be generating solar power. But at what expense? I mean, how expensive are these windows versus traditional ones? Our goal, Ryan, is to have just a slight price point above the cost of an ordinary glass compared to the offset of energy and the payback. Um, Our independently validated model of a 50-story building shows less than a year payback for putting these windows that generate electricity on skyscrapers. And when you compare that to the offset of energy from the very small rooftop, you could compare it to, say, offsetting 130 homes for that 50-story building as opposed to 11 homes for that very small rooftop space of the crystalline PV that would be on that small area. Hmm. So you said that this could offset anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of a building's energy consumption. Uh, I guess that surprises me. Why couldn't you do all of a building's energy use? Is it just that commercial buildings are that intensive? Yeah, they are, Ryan. Keep in mind that about one-third of all the electricity generated in the United States is consumed by commercial buildings. So there's a tremendous load uh, and need for energy. And when we look to offset that amount of energy, it's a tremendous demand. Uh, So this technology of our solar window transparent electricity generating coating Uh, is to aid in the offset of that important energy, keeping the price low and provide energy where currently there is no real economical or technical feasible way to offset the energy of those skyscrapers. Uh, I can just sense that solar experts listening are going to roll their eyes at this, but could a building generate electricity from moonlight? Uh, Can it be lunar? I, I just don't know this. Yeah, that's uh, our our scientists uh, and Dr. Hammond um, are in study to evaluate the ability to generate condition electricity under a varied conditions, and those conditions that are being studied right now are uh, indirect light, such as eastern and western exposure. Uh, um, we're also looking at diffused and shaded light. And importantly, we have data that shows that we can generate electricity using reflected light, which now opens us up to the northern face of that building. How low can that light energy go to produce electricity is what our scientists will be looking at here in the very near term. Yeah, fascinating. And of course, lunar light is reflected light. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so your company, as we mentioned, is working with the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden to commercialize this product. Um, who owns it then? The, the the technology is owned by Solar Window Technologies. We're a publicly traded company. Um, our ticker is WNDW, and the work that's being done at NREL is 100% funds in by Solar Window Technologies. We do not rely on any funds from uh, the United States Department of Energy or NREL for the development of the technology. I see. Uh, but they provide their expertise and their research knowledge. Uh, Which leads me to the next question. Are you concerned about then potential cuts to, say, the Department of Energy or to some of the government labs? For for our technology, Ryan, I'm really not overly concerned about that for a couple of reasons. First, and, and let's look at it from... Uh, policy standpoint. I believe the current administration and the efforts that are being uh, undertaken by uh, Rick Perry's Secretary of Energy, uh, there is tremendous bipartisan effort into renewable energies. 
I also believe that there's tremendous infrastructure for renewable energy that's n- that needs continued focus. But then when we look at the development of solar window, it's such a unique technology. Uh, the development aspects of what we're doing is, is really being ushered in by a key group of scientists, which are core to the technology and we believe that they're going to continue to uh, be available to us to advance the technology through product development. There are others making transparent solar technology, Michigan State and Ubiquitous Energy at MIT. Are you in a race here? Well, I think there's always a race. When you look at skyscrapers, there is a tremendous need to offset energy. However, the technology that they're utilizing is very different from the technology that uh, that we are currently developing uh, so I, I believe they have a specific market with a specific application, as do we. But when we look at this from a business development perspective, there's always a race to market. And being first to market is critically important to us. But again, their technologies are very different than what we're developing at NREL. So how soon do you think you'd see your windows on a skyscraper? Well, we're making advances in product development. Um, we've we've just made a major milestone uh, in in development, which um, after we get confirmation of some of our uh, analysis, we'll be making an announcement relatively soon. Uh, and we're looking at uh, year end twenty seventeen to have uh, a next step towards product development uh, and uh, and and announce again when we're going to have a commercially available product. Okay, so that, that that's a long way of saying you're not sure yet. Well, we're yeah we're well our our goal is uh, is year end 2017 or into 2018 and and that's Ryan is predicated on uh, certainly the the development objectives that are being uh, met at NREL and of course strategic partnerships which we are aligning um, right. as we speak and then of course uh, raising capital continue that effort. John Conklin, CEO of Solar Window Technologies, it's a Maryland-based company working with the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden. And we spoke as part of Beta Test, our coverage of technology breakthroughs in Colorado. Still to come, I'm going to butt out so a young reader can ask questions of the award-winning children's author, Avi. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When we do wrong, we bind ourselves to other people who do wrong. That's a line from Avi's new novel. The Steamboat Springs children's author and Newbery Medal winner has written The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts. It's out next week. It opens in a seaside town in England, the year 1724, and 12-year-old Oliver wakes up to discover his home has flooded and his father has disappeared. Avi joins me, along with a young guest host. Sive Kelleher has read this book. She's 12 and a sixth grader at Denver School of the Arts. We chose her because she's a winner of the Storymakers Writing Contest from Rocky Mountain PBS. And Avi, Sive, welcome to the program. Thank Thank you. you. In the search for his missing father, Oliver has to head to the faraway city, London, alone, and uh, what stands out about his journey to you, Sive? Well, it was super interesting how it was written kind of like a memoir and a diary at the same time. And it was cool to hear about 
the experiences of a child my age, and I could find a lot of connections throughout his journey, yeah. like how he thinks and how I think. You know, he's looking at the world, and he's experiencing the world, and he's commenting on the world. And uh, this is a style and a format, if you will, that derives from 18th century literature. Think of Tom Jones, think of uh, Robinson Crusoe. It's a kind of literature which is self-reflective. So you here you have a, a hero, if you will, who is equally self-reflective and looking on the world and not doing too well. Adults keep getting in the way in this book. Wouldn't you say that's true, Sai? Yes, definitely. And they keep getting in Oliver's way of getting to London. Yeah, every time he tries to do something, and actually says this in the book, every time he tries to do something, every time he tries to move forward, he gets thwarted. What did you think of that view of adults? That's probably seems true to him, and it might be true in some cases, because adults always seem to kids like they have a lot more power, um, even though they're just people. So uh, Oliver, the main character, Oliver Cromwell Pitts, this 12-year-old, awakes one morning, as we said, after a storm. There's water in his home in a seaside town called Melcombe Regis. He has no money. He's hungry. Then he hears about a wrecked ship from this storm on the shore near his home, and he goes to explore. Uh, Avi, why don't we have you read some of this? I should explain that on the southern coast of England... Uh, this is the days of sailing vessels and uh, lots of wrecks. And believe it or not, there's a whole library of law about what happens when a ship strikes the shore. Who owns it? Hmm. But he gets on this ship. It seems to be abandoned. And whether the question is, he knows that if he steals money from it, it's a hanging offense. But he's hungry and he wants money so he can survive. So, despite all these problems, I hoisted myself higher even as I glanced back nervously along the beach east and west. No one was visible. Convinced I was not observed, I swung my legs over the open hatch and inched forward until my feet dangled. Then I moved up even farther until I was sitting on the lip of the hatch using one hand to hold on to the edge so as to keep from descending too fast. With a sudden snap, the wood I was clinging to broke away. Frantic, I tried to grasp something. It was too late. The weight of my body carried me down so that I plummeted straight into the shadowy hold of the Rose in June. The name of this ship, the Rose in June. What is your sense of how this alters his life, Sive? He thinks that stealing is against the law, and he convinces himself that the money is just to survive. And then um, as he goes on, he discovers that money is like very important when you're trying to travel on your own as a child. And it kind of helps him grow up a little, I think. Um, so d did you have to do a lot of research for this book? Like, I understand that it was written in the dialect of a 1720s person, and that's not very easy. Yeah, I did do a lot of research, but I've written any number of books about England about this time. I read a lot of English literature, so a lot of it is quite familiar to me. In terms of language, I did spend a lot of time trying to get the language right because that's, for me, one of the great 
fun aspects of writing this kind of book. Can you give us examples of turns of phrase or or words that you ran across? Right at the beginning, uh, when he confronts this storm, he wakes up to a storm and he says, confounded by such forceful clamors, I was too frightened to shift from my bed. Even so, I listened hard, trying to make sense of what was occurring. Now, that's not probably the way a young person would speak today. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram slang. (laughs) But... There's a kind of slang of its day there. I love language and words, and I make a good deal of effort trying to find the words that are both entertaining and different and illuminating at the same time. There is some shipbuilding terminology, like what's used to make a ship waterproof, and I had to look up that word. What what is that stuff called? Oakum. Oakum, yes. Speaking of research, Avi, there's a character in the book named Jonathan Wilde, and he's known as the, quote, thief-taker-general of Great Britain and Ireland. He's not introduced in the novel until about halfway through, but you quickly get the impression that this is not a man whose bad side you want to be on. Turns out Mr. Wilde was an actual person and the seed of inspiration for this book. Indeed. And if you're really interested, you can see a skeleton in London. It's on display. But that's neither here nor there, is it? Well, you got Sive's attention when you said that. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, he was an extraordinarily vicious and evil man. In England at the time, there was no police force. And citizens were called upon to apprehend somebody who was perceived to have committed a crime. And you were therefore a thief taker. But if you had this person convicted, you got a large reward. And Jonathan Wilde made himself a fortune turning people in. And first he would send them out to commit a crime, and then he would take what they stole, and then he would turn them in. And he became a kind of mastermind evil genius of England at this time until one of his own thieves turned him in and had him hung. I found it super interesting how you um, weaved the plot together so that Jonathan Wilde at first... From all the different perspectives, he seemed like a good man or a bad man, and you have the reader confused until, like, the very last part of the story. Wilde is famous for introducing the word double-cross into the English language. Oh. And if a thief did something under his control that he didn't like, he put one X next to his name in his book, and if he did it a second time, he put a second cross, and that guy, or woman, was gone. He turned them into the executioner. Hence, double cross. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Newbery medal-winning children's author, Avi. He lives in Steamboat Springs. His new book is called The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts. It's a novel, and we read it with Sive Kelleher. She's 12 and a sixth grader at Denver School of the Arts. She's also a winner of the Storymakers Writing Contest from Rocky Mountain PBS, and she is my guest host right now. What's your favorite genre? Like, you seem to write a lot of historical fiction. You know what my favorite answer for that is? Because I'm asked that a lot. I always say my favorite genre is a good book, (laughs) which isn't the genre. But uh, lately I've been doing historical fiction, and uh, the reason is I keep getting older. And my own children have grown up. And what's worse, they've become adults. And what's even worse, they have children of their own. So I am 
getting further and further away from young people. I haven't seen a young person like you in years. So if I write historical fiction, I can make them up. Oliver appears to struggle, though, a lot with moral dilemmas in this novel. Uh, And he feels like adults push him into a world of crime. And at one point, he even says that adults keep ruining things for him, as we said. Talk about that tension, would you, Avi? Well, young people live in a world of adults. Adults make the rules. Uh, They control most of young people's lives. It's probably necessary in a large degree, but sometimes it's uh, not so great. And in this case, he's surrounded by a bunch of rogues and villains uh, who are determined to do him harm, and he doesn't have the knowledge to know what to do. In any case, many of these people who accost him uh, have power or pistols, and they're determined to make use of him. So he does his best. He makes some wrong decisions, but he tries again and again to cope and uh, to do so as cheerfully as he can, and sometimes succeeds, but more often not. Do you think these kinds of things still happen today? Well, yes, (laughs) I do. Um, I just met your mom, and she seems very nice, but I bet she's pretty much in charge of a lot of parts of your life. Would you agree? Yes. Okay, but mostly... 99.9% for the good, right? Yeah. Absolutely. We won't talk about that tiny percentage (laughs) that's not. But the point is that Oliver has also been raised as a sort of what we would call an anti-establishment outside the norm as well. He has a very eccentric father, and he's really been raised by his sister, right? Yeah. And so uh, he's really trying to get back under the protection of somebody who was functioning as his mother. That's his sister, Charity. And then, of course, when he discovers her, it's not quite what he thinks he's going to find, is it? I gasped out loud. Did you gasp? Oh, good. I'm so glad that people gasp when I write something. That's really terrific. And how did you come up with those plot twists? Like, did you think of them as you were writing, or did you mold the story around them? You know, there's some writers, I know them and admire them, they think out every detail I have no idea what I'm going to write on the next page. But, but, when you write a story, how many times do you rewrite it before you're done? Many. What's many? Like two or three. Okay. Um, It depends on the length. Sometimes I just edit the original. Sometimes I completely rewrite it. Okay. Well, when I write a book, I rewrite it maybe 80 times. Oh, my goodness. Another gasp. And... When I do that, that's part of it is to make you think that I've thought it all out cleverly ahead of time (laughs) so that it grows smoothly. But, uh, you know, I'm working on a new book and uh, actually it's the sequel to this book and I've got, Oliver, you'll not be surprised in another predicament and I'm thinking, what in the world is he going to do? So when I get through a first draft... I go back to the beginning and try to make it all seem logical. I have a certain quirky belief as a novelist that I can't write a good first line until I write a good last line. That's interesting. How long did it take you to write this book? It takes me about a year, about eight hours a day. Wow. Think about 
all the time you spend in school. I'd much rather spend that time writing. Um, sometimes you want to get up and stretch. Do you get antsy when you write, Sive? Um, yeah. Like, I'm fidgeting with this right now. Even as we speak. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I do. And I have to stand up and go pet the dog or jump on the trampoline for a few minutes and then I come back. superb writing technique. Yeah, it, it does help me write better. It does. I take walks or I go for a run or I cook. Well, thanks to both of you. My pleasure. Thank you. Newbery award-winning children's author Avi. He lives in Steamboat Springs, and his book The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts is out next week. My guest co-host was 12-year-old Sive Kelleher, a sixth grader at Denver School of the Arts. You can read an excerpt of the new book at cprnews.org. After a break, blind photography. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Who says a blind person can't be a photographer? Certainly not Damon McLeese. He runs a gallery in Denver that hosts artists with disabilities, and the governor has just given him a Creative Leadership Award. I spoke with McLeese about the mission of the Access Gallery last year. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Teaching blind people photography. How does that work? Basically, a lot of people assume that blind people wouldn't be interested in photography. And we also make a lot of assumptions about what people in disabilities might be interested in in general. So I like to challenge those assumptions, turn those up on their heads. And really, if you think about it, taking a photograph is just pointing a camera at something and pulling the trigger. So just because someone's blind doesn't mean that they can't do that or wouldn't be interested in that. And yet they wouldn't be able to appreciate the results in the way that a sighted person would. What did they get from that experience? I think part of the experience is proving that they can do something that people don't expect them to be able to do. And secondly, there's uh, a range of what we consider blind. Some Mm -hmm. people do have some vision. Um, They may not be able to drive or they may not be able to do certain things because of their vision, but they have a little bit of vision and can make out shadow and light and, and bigger objects. And then some people are completely blind and we challenge them to take photographs of things that they can touch or hear. And it's really a pretty simple process. We either put the camera right up to their forehead, or they put the camera right up to their forehead, or they put it on the end of their arm and they stick it out like an elephant trunk. And then you're pointing at basically what what you're hearing or, or what you would be looking at if you were able to see. How have the photos turned out and what are they of? Um, we did a project with the Colorado Ballet last year. They are um, at the end of our block and we went down there and we took photographs of the wardrobe room and of a studio dance class of young artists um, learning a ballet. Because if you think about it, a lot of people don't think in terms of people who are blind enjoying dance as well. So we were really trying to challenge two stereotypes, one about people who are blind taking photographs, and the second about them being interested in dance. There are examples of this at our website, cprnews.org. They're striking, I have to say. Tell me more about the other artists you work with. What is the range of, of... disabilities that they have? Well, we really work with the full range of of disability. We've done programs for preschoolers who are autistic, all the way through people um, who have Alzheimer's. And our primary focus is young people with disabilities that kind of fall through the cracks. 
our main purpose is to increase economic opportunities for young people with disabilities through the arts. And there goes the gallery. And everything we do at the gallery is about providing economic opportunities. So it's not just about making art, but about selling it. Absolutely. We realized that a lot of our young people, the biggest challenge that they were facing wasn't the fact that they had a disability. It was the fact that they couldn't get a job or they didn't have access to economic opportunity. A lot of our students come to us and they've never held a, a traditional job. Some of our students will never hold a traditional job. It doesn't mean that they don't want to buy things or, or contribute or somehow earn a little bit of money. So everything from our Artemat machine, which is a cigarette machine, dispensing original pieces of art for $5, to painting a portrait of your pet, to creating and um, displaying corporate artwork. So we have corporations hire us to make artwork for their boardrooms or their front lobbies. These Artemats, these art yeah. vending machines, those yeah. are, where are those? The Artemat machines are all across the country. There's 90 machines across the country, and we have one here at Access Gallery. Um, if you think about it, you might come in and meet our artist, Nicole, who paints lovely dragons, but you may not want a $60 dragon painting for your living room, but a $5 dragon painting for your car might be just the bill. So that's sort of how we enter. You mentioned the work with young people who have autism. Yes. What's the nature of the of the art that they make? Um, it really depends. A lot of times we'll just come up with an idea. We did a, a project last year called Art, Autism, and Architecture, and we partnered with the Clifford Still Museum to explore the ideas of architecture. Once again, this was a photo project, but we really just looked at the building. We went in and le learned about architecture. We learned about the, the angles and the forms that you might find in a building, and we worked with the students with autism. I don't want to assume that a disability means a disadvantage in the arts. No. Uh, can we talk about ways in which uh, being differently abled mm -hmm. um, is actually an advantage in terms of perspective or insight? Well, I, I actually sort of – I believe that we all have some challenge in our life, whether we are – identified as having a disability or not. And I believe that the arts are a way that everyone can enter into the conversation. You know, somewhere along the line, every child, if you go to a school early on, every child believes that they're an artist. And somewhere along the line, some of us stop believing that. I believe that the arts, regardless of where you're entering, whether you have a disability or not, can help you enter the conversation that can level the playing field. So we can all become artists. We can all learn. And the fact that somebody has a disability or not really isn't important to the creation of the art making. You might have to adapt. We might have to put a bigger handle on a paintbrush, or we might have to hook a roller to a wheelchair, or we might have to find a way to steady a camera on somebody who shakes. But that's, that's um, more mechanics rather than it is creativity. How do you steady a camera on someone who shakes? Um, actually, what we do is we usually attach it to something that is um, uh, stable, something that doesn't move. And then we put um, one of the cords that you can fire the, the camera remotely. And then we can either have somebody roll over it with their wheelchair or their foot or whatever movement they have available to them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're speaking with Damon McLeese. He um, is executive director of the Access Gallery on Santa Fe in Denver. And it is a gallery that provides artistic and economic opportunities to folks with disabilities. Damon, may I share with you one of my favorite stories about assumptions when it comes to people, in this case, with developmental disabilities? Sure. Okay, so this is Timothy P. Shriver of the Special Olympics, who likes the term diff-abilities, diff -abilities, uh -huh. diff um, that people's abilities are simply different. And he was on NPR talking about the day President Clinton visited a Special Olympics event in 1995. 
One of the professional photographers saw a group of Special Olympics athletes and noticed that they'd each had their little single-use cameras mm -hmm. that they'd been given. And they were trying to get a picture of the president, only they all had their cameras backwards. And he said to them, you know, you have to turn your camera around and then you look through the viewfinder and you click the button and you'll get a picture of the president way up high. And the athlete, one of them turned to him and said, oh, thank you so much. He said, but... If you look through the viewfinder backwards, it works just like binoculars, and you can see the president perfectly clearly. And I love the story, uh, Scott, because that uh, photographer was well-intentioned. But boy, were appearances deceiving. I have never forgotten that story, and it makes me wonder to what extent folks with disabilities are limited, not because of their own abilities, but because of what we assume their abilities to be. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the core of what we try and do at Access Gallery. Um, when people walk into the gallery and they see the artwork up on the wall and they say, oh, I had no idea this was created by somebody with a disability, I truly feel like I've done my job. Because the disability really is secondary. We all have certain physical limitations that we, we have to deal with. But really, the creation of art, there's always a way to figure out how to make art. There's always a way to do it. Can this be a profession for some of these students? Oh, absolutely. Um, once again, if our primary purpose is economic opportunity for young people with disabilities, they've never held traditional jobs. So any economic opportunity for them is wonderful. A $50 check, a $100 check. Over time, some of our artists have become... Um, more sellable. They're becoming more marketable. They're becoming more recognized as artists in and of their own right. And, and it is a way for some of our artists to make money. Is it seen by some as outsider art? Absolutely. We, is there a risk of fetishizing it, though? Absolutely. Um, there is. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, some people are looking for that naive or that outsider type of art. And yeah. we have a lot of that. A lot of our artists are self-trained. A lot of our artists don't go to art school. They don't have that formal training, either because intellectually they may not be able to handle the rigors of an art school, or they don't have the opportunity to go to the art school. One of our biggest things is to, is to get our artists from going from sketching and drawing into painting or other mediums. Um, almost all of our students come to us and they can draw because they've been sitting at the back of the classroom for years not knowing what's going on, so they can all sketch. So when they come to us, the idea is to get them to do something that might be a little bit more marketable, a little bit more sellable, or a little bit more outside of what they're comfortable with. Hmm. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you. Damon McLeese of Access Gallery on Santa Fe Drive in Denver, speaking with me last year. The governor has just named him a creative leader in Colorado. Finally today, Denver musician Ben Pisano formed the one-man band known as Corsicana while still in high school. The ambient rock project showcases Pisano's falsetto vocals and his dream-pop songwriting. On his self-produced debut album, Haven, Pisano played every instrument in the recording process, including guitars, percussion, and organ. Here's Corsicana with the single Revelry, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio.
Corsicana. The Denver musician Ben Pisano is the man behind that one-man band, which he formed in high school. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, we'll leave you with more of this single, Revelry. Oh.